been waiting for you. Fred Frederick North. Step into the light so I can see you. Is that what a horror film director should sound like? You can almost hear the smoke machine going off behind him and the black turtleneck he's wearing. That's the voice of Frederick North, the mysterious filmmaker that becomes an obsession for censor's protagonist Enid Baines. In Prano Bailey Bond's debut film Censor, obsession, trauma and even horror filmmaking itself are explored creating a film so layered with beauty, horror, and mystery that it deserves its own podcast. So we just had to make it. Welcome to Censor This, a mini-series dedicated to dissecting some of the many layers of the film. My name is Anna Bogutskaya. I'm the co-founder of the horror film collective The Final Girls, and throughout this mini-series, I've spoken to film critics, cinephiles, horror experts, as well as some of the people who made the film to try to unpick why Censor has stuck with me and with so many of us quite so much. This is the final episode of Censor This, timed absolutely, totally, and in no way on purpose with the release of Censor on digital platforms, which means that you can now watch it and re-watch it at home. Throughout this miniseries, we've heard from a lot of people involved in the making of the film, like lead actress Neve Algar, costume designer Saffron Klein, makeup and hair designer Ruth Pease, and composer Emily Livianese Farouche, but we've not yet heard from the director and co-writer of the film, Prano Bailey Bond. A little while back, The Final Girls hosted a preview screening of Censor at one of our favorite cinemas in London, the Prince Charles Cinema. It was our first event in about way too long. Too long to go without doing any horror screenings. And the conversation you're about to hear in this final episode is my Q&A with Prano after this very screening. So there will be some background noise, some audience reactions. It won't sound as slick as recorded in a studio, but hey, there's nothing quite like being in a cinema with a bunch of people watching a horror film. So hopefully that energy of an audience fresh from seeing Sensor for the first time comes through. You do not need to have seen this film to listen to this podcast or this episode. In fact, I hope that people who haven't seen the film yet might listen to the show and be encouraged to seek it out. As I said, it's now available on digital platforms like Sky, Now TV, Amazon, etc. So if you are listening to this episode and you, for some reason, have not watched Censor yet, you have got no excuse now. Be warned, however, we did record this directly after a screening of the film, so there will be spoilers throughout if you are concerned about that sort of stuff. But if you've seen Censor and you want to hear about it from the woman who made it, then please enjoy my conversation with Censor's co-writer and director, Prano Bailey Bond. Thank you. Um, I've said this to you a million times already, but first of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm making Censor. So Prano, I wanted to ask you, first of all, this film has really, with all of its festival success and everywhere it's screened so far, 
really reignited an interest in this very particular moment in horror history, in British horror history, the video nasty. So can you talk a little bit about your interest in that era and your relationship with that era? Yeah, it's really, really exciting that it's kind of garnered so much interest in this period because when I was writing the film with Anthony Fletcher, I remember saying like, oh, if this was going to, you know, make people go back and look at that period differently um, or revisit some of these films, that would make me very happy. So obviously I'm very happy that that's what's happening. But the, the era is just so fascinating to me. I mean, I didn't start with the era, I started with the character of a film censor but when I was looking at kind of film censorship through the ages in the UK I quickly landed in this era because essentially it's it's sort of off the back of the birth of VHS there was a lot of films particularly horror films that weren't getting the opportunity to to show in cinemas because they weren't being classified so VHS provided this amazing opportunity for all of these films to suddenly be released and now they could go direct to the home. They could be watched, rewound, rewatched by anyone, including children. And that was terrifying because nobody knew what this new form of technology was going to do to our brains and it might turn us all into murderers and psychopaths. And so the sort of moral panic and social hysteria that like came off the back of this is just fascinating. The Daily Mail had a field day with their headlines of taken over by something evil from the TV set and um, rape of our children's minds and things like this. And for me, that is such an interesting period to look back on objectively, you know, thinking about how much things have changed today, how most of these films have been remade and that they're all released uncut now. And has that made us more violent as a society? I'm not sure. <laughs> but then banning these films was kind of a really good advert for them, you know, and I think a lot of the video nasties wouldn't even be remembered today if they hadn't been kind of advertised as this thing that was going to deprave and corrupt you and destroy your mind. It's exactly what a horror fan is looking for. <laughs> So it kind of drew the crowds. And so there's so many things that, that drew me to this period. But I think our relationship with horror was really what I wanted to look at in the character. And, and I could see that what was echoing in society during this period was this really fascinating relationship with horror and, and a bit of a fear around our moral compass. And you mentioned that the genesis of the film was not so much a video nasty, so the context, but the idea of a film censor. And can you talk a little bit more about this, the, the genesis of, of Enid and what about this idea of a film censor censoring horror films fascinated you? Yeah, I was reading an article about the Hammer Horror era. So it's obviously slightly earlier than the Video Nasty period. But during the Video Nasty era and the Hammer Horror era, there weren't that many rules in terms of what censors would cut from films. Now they have guidelines which specify whether it's a 15 or an 18 and that kind of protects the censor in a way because they've got a set of guidelines to go by but there weren't rules in these periods but one of the only rules during the Hammer Horror era was that the sight of blood on the breast of a woman would be cut because they believed that it might make men likely to commit rape and I was like well surely loads of the film censors were men and, you know, if these images are supposed to do the, this to our brains, like, what is it that protects the film censor from losing control? And I guess I started to think about 
a film censor who maybe really believed in censorship and might start to think that these images were having an effect on them. And it kind of started as a sort of pretty immature idea and it was a male censor. And then as I explored the sort of themes and ideas more and more, it became a woman, partly because I felt like there's a different tension when you watch a woman watch this kind of material to a man. And it felt like the less obvious choice as well, which interested me. And I think I was more interested in exploring a character who was battling with something dark within themselves that was maybe more related to kind of guilt, something dark in their past. And I, I just felt like obviously you could do that around a man, but you might end up more in a kind of sexual violence towards women area when you're looking at the video nasties and I didn't want to look at these films specifically with that eye. You know, it is part of the film because it's part of the video nasties. But I was more interested in a sort of different kind of relationship with horror that maybe might, you know, reflect my own relationship. Not that my own relationship is like Enid's with horror. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> um, let's hope not. No, um, but can you talk a little bit more about this tension of, and specifically kind of considering that you, as you develop the character of, and the character became Enid Baines, what is this tension of this woman, this female censor in particular, who has to, for work, look at all of this, this horror films, this violent imagery with a very specific sense of purpose. So it's not just a horror fan, like most of us are here probably. But you alluded to it before, and I'd be really curious to hear what was that tension that you wanted to explore? Mm. Well, there's different things about Enid. I mean, I was really interested in exploring somebody who was censored themselves and the idea of self-censorship. So that's obviously there in her backstory, but Enid doesn't really react to the to the things she's watching. <laughs> you know, she's... Um, She's not having the same reactions as her colleagues. And, and part of that is because I needed to show where she does have a reaction and what her Achilles heel actually is. So there's, there's that relationship. Yeah, but I think exploring somebody who, who's self-censored was, was really interesting to me because it's not just about censorship in art and film, but it's also about how we cut things out for ourselves or our brain senses things and you know so so there was that element as well I don't think I've actually answered your question but <laughs> you've answered very well thank you thank you um, and, but actually sticking on Enid can you talk a little bit about the evolution of her of her character and how you designed her kind of from the page to casting Neve Algar who is exceptional in the film to the look of her and how she unravels throughout the film mm. Yeah, I mean, it was a long process. It was over years, so I will try and condense it to the interesting bits. But her name changed a lot, actually, over the course. I think she was called Linda at one point. But we definitely talked a lot because I co-wrote the script with Anthony Fletcher. And I remember us talking a lot about her relationship with, with the films and, you know, whether she was a bit more of a Mary Whitehouse sort of figure or if she was more kind of lenient about the the horror and how we kind of pitched her and I definitely was thinking about how horror fans might react to her in that sense but she needed to be buttoned up you know ultimately she had to be um crunchy I think I always described her as crunchy because it's her own discomfort with herself her own discomfort with her shadow self 
that takes her to where she ends up and and the idea of her censoring urges or censoring um you know feelings or or censoring her communication with other people that kind of takes her to this kind of darker and darker place so there was a lot of stuff that kind of got developed obviously uh, through the writing process and lots of research and talking to film censors from the time who happened to be women as well and that was really helpful and then in terms of her physicality I always imagined her being very neat and tidy because Enid is very neat and tidy I mean even the crossword puzzle that she's doing if anybody noticed she's writing the word tidy because she has everything quite neat and tidy in her life she's you know organized her feelings about this and that and it's a way of her not having to deal with what's gone on in her past and what's going on in herself so yeah so the the kind of physicality was sort of it came through that but then I always imagined her slightly unraveling as we as we went on and then casting Neve well that was a whole amazing process but then once um Neve was cast in the role we talked a lot about her physicality as well and it was really really fun actually because I always remember thinking this I need a detail about Enid I needed something that she does and Neve sent me this video of Enid picking well it wasn't Enid it was Neve uh, she was picking the skin on her thumb like I've still got it on my phone and she's like digging her nail into it and she said she said oh, I think this is what Enid does when she's stressed because I'd always described Enid to Neve as that she's like an onion like basically that she's got all these layers of sort of protection that she's surrounded herself with but that's because deep down she thinks the middle part of her self is rotten, that she's deep down a really bad person and she's trying to kind of hide that from everybody. And Neve felt that her picking away was almost like her peeling back these layers of herself as the film went on and it's this kind of anxiety thing. And, um, and, and so I kind of told my makeup artist about that and she was like, oh yeah, we can make it really like you know, get more gross and bloody as it goes on and stuff. So things like that. And then Neve did this kind of reset thing with her shoulders that sort of happened quite naturally. And then in the sound design process, we thought, oh, we'll add some sound to that. And so the physicality was a big thing and it's quite different to how Neve moves. And she's quite a chameleon as an actress. She's incredible. She transforms from role to role. And, and I think if you've met Neve, you'll know that she's, this is probably the least like her of all her roles. She's luckily nothing like Enid. <laughs> I mean, I feel very, um, very weird because I do that thing about picking up your thumb as well. So I was like, right. oh, okay, let's hide that. Uh, let's not get deeper into that. But, <laughs> but there is something, you know, the physicality of Enid is one thing, but then you've, you've mentioned kind of the shadow self idea and this idea of Enid trying to cover up how she feels about herself and obviously not really really vocalizing that to herself and definitely not to anyone around her. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about the, the process of, of crafting her psychology, you know, this idea of her having this layers of trauma that she's covered up with tidiness, with her work, with this intense sense of responsibility for other people, but seemingly none for herself. Yeah, it was definitely one of the most challenging aspects of making the film, actually, because you've got a character who isn't talking about what they think or feel. And I remember even in development, me and Anthony being like, oh, if only she had a best friend or she went to therapy. 
<laughs> you know, because that's why you put a best friend or a therapist in a film so that the character goes and goes, I feel like this. But we couldn't do that with Enid because mm. if she went to therapy, the the story wouldn't have happened. No um, yeah, exactly. And she doesn't open up to anybody. So, you know, so it was really about how do we keep the audience in her head? And a big part of that is casting an actor who allows us into the character because Enid's so closed and Neve is very nuanced in her performance and she's got this ability to put thought on screen and and she lets us in she's very empathetic Enid's a very closed hard character and could be quite cold on the page but Neve allows us into that um, and she she really understood the psychology of the character and was able to translate that but it's not just about the performance it's about every department and so even, you know, the way you shoot the character, where the camera is, even things like the colour journey of the character, which um, we talked about a lot, you know, in prep, me and my director of photography, production designer and costume designer, we kind of plotted the colour journey all together. So you have Enid very much as the kind of colours of the world of the the you know, census office at the at the beginning, she's like, she fits into that world. She's part of the furniture, you know, so we were going for these kind of greys and cyans and blues. And then when we go into her dreams, we start to introduce the kind of pinks and purples that you might get in an Argento or Lucha Fulci film. And then we come back and we're starting to pepper those those colours in in the background, but also her costume and the other characters' costumes change colour and the lighting changes colour in the censor's office. So that was all kind of carefully plotted and all about how we kind of weave Enid's sort of psychological breakdown um, in the film. But then it's still, you know, beyond that, there's the sound and the music, which really kind of draws us into Enid. And our composer, Emily Levanese Farouche, who is amazing, when she sent in the first piece of music, which she did actually just from reading the script, she hadn't seen the film. And she, I, I remember having a conversation with her about Enid's trauma. And I remember saying that I thought like deep kind of sounds, like deep rumbles were, were what were going to work for the film. And she went away and she did this kind of vocal stuff where she was just making some really strange noises and then processing those noises into music. And she sent us this piece and we put it in the edit over Enid. And I was like, oh my God, she's like tuned into Enid's belly almost. And Emily's process is to just watch the film over and over and over again. Uh, she watches and she tunes into the performance and the character. And then she translates that into music. And and that was just a beautiful part of making the film that, again, kind of draws you into what's going on in Enid's head in a sort of a way that isn't so tangible, I guess, that's uh, really expressive. Um, so, yeah, loads of stuff goes into all of that. It's very visceral. And just to plug Emily's work uh, again, she mentioned this thing in an interview we did with them. It's like it was trying to think of what Enid's lullaby to herself would sound yeah. like, which I loved as a concept but there's something I wanted to ask you as well about kind of weaving in all the different departments of your team into building this world and this journey not just in terms of the color scheme but everything around her as she starts kind of getting more into the films themselves mm. like literally getting to the point especially at the ending of 
creating a whole nother reality or exploding a reality or getting onto these film sets, which she previously had only seen on this tiny, this tiny professional screen. Can you talk a little bit about how you weaved in your team, especially your production designer, your work with your cinematographer, Annika Summerson, on creating this descent almost into madness for Enid through kind of this very specific, tightly wound 1980s drab looking Britain to a cabin in the woods with a beast man and directors and this almost Lynchian other universe. Yeah, I mean, I divided the film into worlds very early on. So I always talked about the different worlds of the film and you have the real world at the beginning that's kind of very sort of separated from the video nasty world, which is all happening on on the screens within the censor's office. But then there's Enid's dream world and uh, her memories as well. And I kind of, uh, I guess each had you know, a way that we'd shoot them and they'd have certain props and techniques. And then it was about weaving those elements from one world to the next. So for example, at the beginning of the film, it's the camera work is very still. It's uh, the camera doesn't really move unless Enid moves. And it's only later in the film that we go handheld where Enid's kind of losing control. And, you know, so all of those elements kind of, I guess, uh, you know, are like being utilized and, and woven into each other to sort of create that descent. Yeah, so there's, there's that, there's the color, there's the performance, there's the, the sound design, which was super fun to create. And, you know, we used some incredible techniques and that becomes more surreal as the, as the film progresses. So that can be quite subliminal, but, you know, so we did things like um, we processed the sound so you might take the sound for example of the dream and the sound team processed that through something called a transducer which um, will push the sound through an object and then you record the sound back with like a contact mic so for example they they processed the sounds sound through a 50 meter piano wire and then used contact mics to record that back so you have the normal sound of a scene but then you're putting it through this and it creates this really sort of surreal, weird soundscape that then you're mixing into the dream sequences. But then later in the film, you might start to use that, those techniques in reality as, you know, as things are blurring together, that fiction and reality are blurring together. But it's really every element because even in the script, you know, it, it's like we, we were really trying to layer in like, where fiction and reality blur so for example just Enid turning up and being in a space at Doug Smart's house where you know she's seen this in a video nasty at work and those ideas are kind of you're kind of just looking for everywhere you can kind of blur those lines and and create this descent but it was so much fun I mean with something like Censor you know being a horror fan you can wear your references on your sleeve very much and so you know, there's lots of winks and nods in there and being able to take the tropes of these films and hopefully kind of subvert them a little bit. Like you've got that wink about a cabin in the woods. You've got the wink about a woman in a white nighty running through the forest covered in, in blood and mud screaming. And, you know, it was just fun watching the video nasties and picking out sort of images and ideas and thinking, how can I weave this in and, and, like throw it on its head a little bit 
but actually I've even had people come and say like, oh, you were referencing that film at that point. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. And then they'll show me an image and I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I was. And I didn't realize I was. I, you know, you come to these, these images that are sort of seem so iconic mm. from the period and you're like, oh, maybe there was something, you know, subconscious going on with me as well. <laughs> <laughs> and and the figures of Frederick North, the director, Doug Smart, the sleazy producer, and the filmmaking aspects that we see, especially towards the third half of the, the third act of the film. Was there anything particular that you wanted to say about the process of filmmaking through showing it in censor? It's a good question. I mean, I don't know if I was necessarily thinking about that so much. I was definitely much more focused on the relationship between reality and horror and I think I summarised that with Frederick North's speech, <laughs> which I'm sure is um, partly my own speech. You know, it's sort of this, I was thinking a lot about the image of Ouroboros, the snake who eats his own tail, and this idea of like, where does horror begin and, or where does reality end and horror begin or vice versa. And so I was thinking much more about that and, and the filmmaking process just is a natural part of that but I definitely went back to films like Peeping Tom you know and and thought about how the camera can become a weapon and and how we you know then we kind of translated that into the way that Frederick North uses his Super 8 camera in in the kind of scene where she meets him. I think we need to wrap up but I just have one final question for you Prano kind of hearing you talk again about these ideas about our relationship with horror and how the film explores that. I wanted to ask you what do you what do you think is the true horror of censor? And I know it's a it's an open question because it's a film that can be interpreted in so many different ways and has been interpreted in so many different ways. But what for you is the true horror of it? I think it's not knowing not knowing what happens really not in the film but like maybe for everybody but not knowing for Enid it's a psychological horror it's more of a psychological horror than a you know, a jump scare horror film. It's it's about the psychology of the character and and the not knowing and the responsibility that she feels for not knowing. So yeah, not knowing ambiguous loss and never having any closure for something. And that's terrifying conceptually, but definitely in the film. Again, congratulations on making an extraordinary film, horror or not. And thank you again for speaking to us, for speaking to everyone. Where can people find out and follow more the journey of the film? So there's a website where you can look at all the screenings coming up, censorfilm.co.uk. And I tweet about it all the time. <laughs> so I'm on Twitter, like, yeah, um, like, yeah, just, yeah, tweeting about the film lots because it's, it's very exciting for me because it's my first film and it's, and it's incredibly yeah. exciting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this podcast has been produced by The Final Girls with the support of Vertigo Releasing. It's been edited by Olivia Graham with music by Emily Levenise Farouche, used with permission. Sensor is out now on digital platforms in the UK, so seek it out. And if you want to continue talking about horror films, do seek out the Final Girls podcast as well. <laughs>